This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and changemakers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. season is brought to you by your host Julia and Jacqueline and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. When you think about trees, what comes to mind? In most of our heads, they're probably the prime example of something that's good for the environment. Even though it is by far not the only way to capture carbon, there is an increasing trend to quantify and enhance the environmental benefit of sustainable forestry. We're happy to have Gesa Biermann as our guest today. Gesa is co-founder at Pina, a startup that quantifies and rewards sustainable forestry. Before founding Pina, she was a center assistant at CDTM, did her PhD in the area of sustainable food consumption, and co-founded the Munich branch of 180 Degrees Consulting. Over the course of the episode, we will dive deeper into Gesa's journey in the field of sustainability and social impact. We will hear how the CDTM shaped her and also how both idea and founding team for Pina were impacted by the center. Finally, we will deep dive into Gase's view on the future of sustainability and the voluntary carbon market. And as always, we end the episode by getting insights into Gase's personal toolbox. First of all, thank you so much for being here. We're really excited for this conversation and to have you on. And just to kick off, we'd like to ask you a few questions about your previous career, your academic background. And so looking at your academic background, you come from a social science background originally. What made you choose this path? And then subsequently, what guided you to go into more technical topics such as sustainable resource management or informatics at Berkeley? Thanks so much for having me, first of all. And I think this question is actually something that applies to everybody in the room today. So I would also be excited to hear your answers on the same question, because I think between us, we share backgrounds in politics, journalism, media, communication. But for me, starting with communication, science and economics basically kept a lot of options open after finishing high school. And I learned a lot of skills, especially around qualitative and quantitative research, such as thinking in hypotheses that I think have been really valuable for basically all the jobs I've held. But then after my bachelor's, it was also a very conscious decision to want to learn more about how our world works. So much more on a physical level and basically what we humans are doing to it. So that is why I pivoted a little bit to sustainable resource management at the Technical University at the Freising campus, actually. And there I picked focal subjects in agriculture, soil science, and water management. So really trying to take topics where I knew nothing about. And I loved it. So we, we did excursions in the forest. We dug holes to figure out soil profiles. We visited farms. It was really hands-on, which was very different from my bachelor's experience. And yeah, from there, my path was really influenced by a lot of great people that I met along the way, such as my former colleague, Flo Lachner, or actually Dr. Flo Lachner, who is now at Google. And he actually motivated me to apply at CTM as part of the management team or center assistance, as, as we're known more internally. And yeah, I think the central theme for me more and more started to focus on this question of how to tackle core social and environmental problems, but in a scalable way with technology. 
I think it's really interesting that three persons in the room today like share social science backgrounds, me and communication science, you gather as well in a bachelor's and Jacqueline from political science and all of us kind of transition into the tech world also with the help of CDTM. I think it's really interesting. But also regarding your career before founding PINA and also before becoming a central assistant at CDTM, you also founded the Munich branch of 180 Degrees Consulting, which, which I also find really interesting. And I wanted to ask you, what did you learn already back then that helped you with the further endeavors in entrepreneurship, but also maybe at CDTM? Yeah, so here's a not so well-known fact. Um, the first thing I actually founded was a small fashion brand together with my roommate during our bachelor's. So shout out to Natalie Wilk, who's actually also a centerling. She is now living in Chile and she recently sold her startup um, called Colociclo Consciente, which basi basically translates to something like conscious or mindful cycle, and they produce sustainable period underwear. So her current focus topic is all around breaking taboos around menstruation. And I think you should definitely put her on the shortlist for next yeah, podcast <laughs> candidates to interview. And yeah, what I learned from that experience on and the one at 180, everything has really scrappy beginnings. So for the fashion brand, we printed the first items in our kitchen. We begged our friends to model for us and only then got our own web shop once those sales started to increase. It was also very early days. So something like Shopify wasn't really an option yet. You really had to get someone to custom program an online store back in 2012. It was a bit different. Um, and secondly, I think it's important to not consider yourself too good or above any task that has to be done. So I sewed on patches on hats until 2 a.m. for this fashion startup. Uh, Natalie tirelessly packaged our orders. And I think it really taught us both that starting a company is very operational. So you really need to hustle. And I think that word is a bit confusing sometimes, but you need to work hard to really get stuff off the ground. And Yeah, that involves a lot of different tasks. Um, and 180 Degrees Consulting basically came about because I was looking for an opportunity to volunteer next to uni. And one of my best friends, uh, Yuki Asano, on his LinkedIn, he had listed this really cool thing, 180 Degrees Consulting in Tokyo during his time abroad. And basically I asked him, hey, does this also exist in Munich? And he said, um, no, but maybe we could start it. And so the idea was born just out of this conversation. And we, again, begged some friends to come and do this with us. They brought in very diverse experience, a friend who's studying law, someone who's focused on economic development, someone who had a background in software engineering to basically put up a website and things like that. And yeah, we then applied to the central organization to get the go to found the Munich branch. And since then, the organization has really grown. So it now has over 200 alumni, 30,000 volunteering hours, 50 projects. And I think it is one of the achievements that so far I'm most proud of, having laid a tiny part of that foundation. And the organization has really professionalized since then. Super cool. That is really amazing. And yeah, really inspiring to hear how you just heard a story from Tokyo and decided to make it your own in Munich. I think that's really amazing. And another aspect of your study background that I wanted to ask you about was that you have had a focus both in your study background and in your career on social and environmental impact. Was that always part of your goal or 
How did that develop for you? It wasn't always a focus, I would say. I did experiment with internships outside of the field, also because I was fascinated with kind of the scalability of technology where it didn't necessarily have an environmental benefit. I also did a management consulting intern basically because I wanted to see what people were talking about and to speak about it from experience. Yeah, so I think I was shopping around a bit before I focused on this social and environmental impact. Super interesting. And also at some point you decided to do your PhD. And the question would be, why did you decide to pursue an academic career in the first place? And why at CDTM? So after having changed course a bit after my bachelor, some from social sciences, communication science and economics to sustainable resource management, I just came out of my master's feeling like, okay, there's so much more that I could know about. And I really wanted to go into depth on one particular topic. And at the same time, I didn't want to lose connection to industry and kind of trends that were developing. So I think for me, have, doing this at a chair without any connection into the world of practice, I think would not have been an option. And CDTM really was the perfect combination. And you're surrounded by honestly some of the most awesome people, not just mostly awesome, but truly awesome people every day. And I think that's something that it was great for me after my master's. Didn't want to be anywhere else. I think... I'm hearing you so far talk a lot about the various communities within Munich. And I think that's something that also really struck me when I moved to Munich like a year or so ago. And it seems that the, there are increasingly community overlaps between the various student initiatives. And how would you say that you feel about this increasing community overlap, like, for example, between 180 Degrees Consulting and CDTM? I think it's super awesome because... There are more motivated people than CDTM can take on. So it's great that there are so many different opportunities, whether that is at CDTM or Manage and More. Untenimatum has a lot of interesting programs. 180 degrees consulting, I think compared to CDTM, is much more impact focused, whereas CDTM is more technology focused. And so I think each organization can also basically learn from the other. Great. And yeah, so during your time at TM, where you worked as a center assistant and did your PhD, I, I just checked on LinkedIn the dates when you started. And I also like kind of compare it to the number of CDTM startups that went out during that time. So that means that during your time as CA, you actually taught some of the future and now CDTM founders. And my question would be, Was there anything peculiar about teaching future founders back then or it wasn't so obvious? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, we're actually now sharing an office with some of the people that I was teaching. So from Cento, another startup, which has been super great. Never would have gotten to know them probably without CDTM. And yeah, I think it's such a luxury teaching students who are as motivated as they are at CDTM. And honestly, having an interactive classroom, I think, is one of the most enjoyable settings one can be in. So if people just come in the door with this learning hat, this learning mindset on is super great and is not something to be taken for granted. So I have taught in other environments a bit different. Yeah. And also CTM students, they will really challenge you. They are not afraid to ask the hard questions from day one coming into the program. And I think this really prepped me actually for leading our seed funding round at Pina because I had to answer all of the investor questions. And it felt a bit similar sometimes to standing in front of the classroom and being bombarded with also the hard stuff. Yeah, there is nothing that CDTM students love more than a Q&A section. But going back to your academic background a bit, your research focused on sustainable food consumption and Pina is currently focused on sustainable forestry. 
How did that switch come about? Yeah, this is a bit of a longer story, but I think we have time today. So <laughs> I'll give you the long founding version. So originally we started in a different team setup with a different idea. It was also called Pina, which maybe is a little bit confusing, but we were always, yeah, we just kept the name because we liked it. So the original idea was an app to change food habits to more sustainable ones. So basically getting people to eat less meat as a first step. So this, I think, is much more closely related to my research field and my PhD, a bit more obvious why this, this was interesting. But then we actually pivoted completely away from from this idea because apps generally I think are a very tough business model and especially the ones where you change behavior and your users basically leave if you're doing your job successfully. And finally, the third point for us is that this type of business is very social media dependent. And I think there we didn't really have a great idea founder fit. So mm -hmm. I think there the fit wasn't really there. We had actually already been alpha testing the app with about 30 people and the app itself had a lot of things that we took over from economics, so from nudge theory, basically. And one of them was a sort of micro offsetting mechanism. So basically what you could do is you could set yourself a goal. Mm -hmm. Let's say I want to eat meat only on one out of seven days a week. And then if you went against that goal, so you kind of broke your own promise, you could also fix a certain amount of euros. So I don't know, let's say one euro, maybe even five. And this would go into climate protection projects if you broke your own goal. And with this experience, we kind of learned from the carbon credit buyer side, because it was then our job to use that money from these first 30 people that we were testing with to invest in carbon credit projects. And we found out how a confusing the buying process can be. And we're also wondering why we couldn't really support any local carbon credit projects. So that was, I would say, a small window into the carbon market through this completely different product that we were developing. And then now, how did PINA come about? And maybe let me quickly tell you what we do at PINA. I think just for context, that's helpful. So we help forest owners to issue and sell carbon credits. And this new income that they can generate is then used to reinvest in their forest and prepare it for a changing climate. Now, issuing a carbon credit involves a lot of complex steps. So from checking, do you meet the participation requirements? Is the monitoring for forest carbon is complex? You need to quantify how much carbon is actually stored. You need to complete an over 100 page reporting and all of that we are translating into replicable automated processes through software. That is what PINA is about. And how did we land at this idea? It actually came out of a very structured ideation process, which I think is a lot less romantic than this kind of eureka moment that some people imagine entrepreneurship to be. It's a process that we actually copied from the CDTM trend seminar, where you also do a very structured search. And through this search, we came up with about 100, 150 problem spaces. So things that we thought would be interesting to tackle and then went on to get a little bit further down in the funnel and take some that we found particularly interesting, evaluated them according to a set of criteria such as market size, customer acquisition costs, whether we're passionate about this particular problem. I think that is a very, very important part because entrepreneurship is going to be tough. And I think this internal motivation is what ultimately keeps you going through those tough times. And one question that I also particularly liked was how proud would your loved ones be if you told them that you're working on this? <laughs> so kind of a check if, if your grandma would be supportive of this idea. Um, and then we were 
set on tackling a problem that did have a social or environmental impact, but the span was still very large. So just to give you a few examples, we looked into helping parents find a midwife. This is for some reason still very complex in Germany. We looked into how could we make sex toys more sustainable? How could we help young adults get better at financial habits and combine that with kind of a green neobank solution? So you can see that we're also yeah, passionate about quite a diverse set of problems. And then finally, the, the problem solution for Pina convinced us as part of this evaluation. Very, very interesting, especially the part that an ideation can be so structured. It's not like this eureka moment, this romantic story that founders share and tell, hey, I was just so passionate. I was walking down the street and the idea came to my mind that it really also can be a very, very structured and a very pragmatic approach to finding your idea. And also that you took into account also like your personal fit is also something that I haven't thought about yet, like whether my loved ones would be proud of me. It's also super interesting. But from what you said, taking the framework that we are using at Trend Seminar during CDTM, I think it was not like the only way how, how Pina could benefit from CDTM, right? And I also know that you also collaborated with CDTM actually in the managing product development course. And from what I heard from other people, it contributed really a lot to Pina's product and idea. And I was just very curious, like, why did you decide to partner with CDTM and what exactly did you take out of this partnership? So the offer to participate in the managing product development course came just at the right time, I think. And, and having been on the inside as, as part of the center assistant team, I it didn't take much convincing, to be honest. So I knew we would get a team of extremely motivated, smart, curious people. And that's just what we needed during this ideation phase. It also helped us to focus and get from this problem search to a solution within three months, because I think setting deadlines for this kind of task is extremely important because you could keep going on in this forever, basically. And yeah, so within the Managing Product Development course, we were supported by a team of students. So shout out to Jose, who is actually now a center assistant himself, Eric, Isabel, and Timon. They had a huge impact on our first steps. We've actually since then also done an e-lab project with CDTM. It was a different focus. So once we had settled on the idea of Pina, this was more about figuring out which markets could be interesting to expand in within the EU and kind of do an analysis on this. Yeah, so for anyone listening who's thinking about doing a project with CDTM, I think collaborating <laughs> with Centerlinks, at least for us, has always been extremely valuable for Pina. Nice. I think that's really amazing to hear, particularly as someone who's currently in managing product development. <laughs> But talking a little bit more about Pina, many companies who are entering the carbon markets are focused more on either South American or African markets, what caused you to decide to target German forest owners and what are some benefits and obstacles of tackling this specific market? Yeah, so here come some numbers to, to help quantify <laughs> <laughs> our reasoning because we do try to make decisions very data-driven. So the first one that, that surprises me is that 0.1% of projects issuing carbon credits originate in Europe. 0.1%. That's basically nothing. Why is that? It's because regarding forestry, we have a very fragmented ownership situation in Europe. So somebody will own on average 13 hectares. And I will be speaking about hectares a little bit in the next couple of minutes. So to, to give you a better understanding what a hectare is, a hectare is a size that is 100 by 100 meters, so 10,000 square meters, or compared to something that you might find easier in your head, it's about 1.4 
soccer slash football field, so Fußballfelder in German to get the sport mm -hmm. right. Yeah, so 13 of those is not that much. Um, and basically the project development costs to get to issue a carbon credit are just too high. So it doesn't really make sense. You have many manual processes for data collection and certification tasks. So that ends up costing a couple hundred thousand euros and can take two to three years of development time. So this doesn't matter so much if your project is huge. And with these regions that you were mentioning, we're talking about 50,000, sometimes 100,000 hectares. That's perfectly fine, but it sure does make a difference if your project is maybe a couple hundred hectares. And what, yeah, what comes to mind when we're speaking about antiquated manual processes is, of course, a technology-focused solution, a software solution. Yeah, and with our approach, we're lowering the cost of certification and time to a carbon credit. And thereby, our goal is to give smaller European forest owners access, starting in Germany. And for us as a team, of course, the driver really is climate-focused. And I also want to give you some context on this. So this is the bit of the sad part of this podcast, probably. The environmental need is very obvious. So we lost actually 500,000 hectares of forest in the past four years since 2018 in Germany alone, um, which amounts to about 5% of the entire forest area. And this is increasing due to climate change. So this number will probably go up and accelerate in speed. Comparing that or broadening that to the EU scope, over half to be exact 60% of EU forest biomass is at climate risk. And that's actually the number that keeps me up sometimes at night because that is just a huge percentage. And so that's definitely something that is career filling for us at PINA. It's a huge task, but also a huge opportunity, of course, at the same time. We are in a very early market. Um, you addressed obstacles. What's maybe hard to, to get into this market to access it? One part is missing regulation. So basically, we still feel like we are at the right place at the right time. Um, something that I always think of it, that gives me confidence as well is that uh, comparing it to telemedicine, um, so telemedicine regulation yeah. was heavily lagging behind um, at the time that startups were already being founded um, in Germany on this topic. So, for example, Teleklinik, that also is uh, CTM mm -hmm. related had to basically co-shape regulation. And we are in that same place. So we are actively trying to influence EU regulation on carbon markets, trying to set the highest standard we can for ourselves in terms of carbon credit quality. And in that sense, I think we're exactly where we need to be. Great. I think it's also a, a great cause, especially how few carbon projects are done within Europe and also within, within Germany. And also maybe related to that question, what I also was curious about, I wanted to learn like your strategy behind that with your strong focus on European market or German um, forest owners, you still applied for Y Combinator for the latest batch. By the way, congratulations on that. But like from my understanding, Y Combinator is actually focused on companies that want to expand to US and like my understanding of that but they definitely have like a US network and I just wanted to ask you like what was the strategy behind and why did you decide to apply to that and I mean like why Combinator is in the main amazing program and maybe you can already share some learnings with us from what you took out of that yes I would love to so I think generally being a first time at least a first time tech founder of fashion business aside I think you should use all the support you can get from people who have done this before 
And no one has seen as many startups and as many founder teams as Y Combinator. And I think for us, that was the strongest incentive to apply to the program, to not make mistakes that are preventable. And yeah, now in our batch, over 17,000 startups applied. Um, so we didn't necessarily count on it working out. <laughs> but coming mm-hmm. from the philosophy, if you don't try, you'll never know if yeah. maybe it will work out. We applied nonetheless and, and made it in. And I think also it's really motivating as a climate tech startup to be among giants such as Stripe, Reddit, GitLab, mm-hmm. Dropbox, Airbnb, all of these companies. Big names aside, I think what left a very positive impression on me is the extreme down-to-earth attitude and frankness of the community and especially the partners that Y Combinator. So no one was buzzwordy or over the top or speaking mm-hmm. in riddles. They actually really hate that and try to kind of get you to not do that. And in the one-to-one sessions with the partners that we had throughout the batch and actually still have now, I also always had the impression that they focus not only on the startup's growth, but also on the founder's personal growth. And one thing, one of the learnings that we took away is they train you to basically get shit done. I don't know if I'm allowed to say shit. I think so, right? Okay. Yes, you are. Um, okay, great. Okay. Yeah, so they train you to do that, to focus on on execution and basically to do, if you say you will do something, to actually do it. It sounds very simple, but that's what they're trying to get you to do. And the second thing that we learned and something that they really try to hammer in is to focus. So what you should be doing over 90% of your time as a founder is to build your product or to sell it. So those are the only two things that you are allowed to do during the batch, actually. You're not allowed to hire. Well, not I'm saying allowed. I mean, they strongly recommend you to not hire or fundraise or do any other activity except building and selling. And I think that is something that really hit home for us. And we really refocused and basically struck out a lot of stuff from our calendars that didn't have anything to do with mm-hmm. either one of those two tasks. Oh, that's amazing. A lot of what you said just really resonated in terms of having a down-to-earth attitude and being able to focus and just like narrowing in on tasks. And I guess that leads me to wonder about the company culture at Pina. So I, we've talked about what you learned at YC, but now back in Munich, what kind of culture are you building with Pina and what is important to you as a founder? actually think about this topic a lot and I think there's so much to learn about it and how to you're really setting the foundation I think very early earlier than maybe even expect in a startup for cultural aspects and I'm actually currently reading a book called Work Rules by Laszlo Bach he's the former senior VP of people operations at Google and they make all decisions based on data which I think is great and now we don't have the resources to run these extremely large-scale experiments across an organization of over 100,000 people And that's why I think learning from this book and from their experience is amazing. And in terms of values and in terms of kind of principles that we're trying to set as the founder team and also with all employees at Pina is one that I was already talking about in the context of YC is just basically staying grounded. So not priding yourself Mm -hmm. on things that may seem sparkly, but rather being proud of our core purpose. So leveraging the power of technology for effective climate action, priding yourself on being kind and being smart and our drive to take ownership and and grow ourselves. I think those things are much more at the core. I said earlier that I learned the need to hustle to be a founder, and I want to kind of make that a little bit more concrete, what I mean by that. What it means to me is that you need to do things that other people won't do or don't want to do. And you're doing these things, not just because you have to, but actually with a sense of joy and purpose, because you love the topic that you're working on, you love this problem that you're trying to solve. 
So you don't really mind doing all this kind of operational tasks, all these things. You're trying to push a boulder up, up a hill, basically. It's what it feels like sometimes. It means tackling the hard stuff head on and not waiting around for solutions or opportunities to just kind of come your way, but to really make them happen. And it means acting with purpose and urgency. So I think that's something that cannot be done without ownership that just kind of follows naturally. And the final one I want to address, because it's also related to to climate, is resiliency. So not just because we're a startup, but also because we are a startup acting in a context of, of global climate change. So basically, the surrounding that is also part of our core business is changing while we are building the startup. And as a founder, I think you will definitely make mistakes. I think this is not news. I think the important part is to stay passionate about the problem that you're solving and to find a solution moving forward. So basically resiliency in your motivation. So if you fall down, you get up again with the same self-confidence, but with gained learning. So you're a little bit smarter than last time. Great. And also from, from what you said, like creating values and building up resilience, especially in a climate tech startup, I was just thinking, as you said that, that I think it's much easier to share values in a climate tech startup than in a some B2B vertical startup, just because it's so easy for people to really resonate with the problem space and like really get up every morning with this thing in the head and saying, hey, I do it for this course. So I think it's really great at Pina. And maybe also moving on to a more abstract topic, I would say, just because you're definitely an expert in this field. And I kind of conducted an internal deep dive at, at a fund where I'm currently working on carbon credits. That's why I'm really curious about your perspective on the whole topic and also the state of the market in, in Germany and also how you see regulations. And my first question would be also from what I observe in the industry that more and more um, net zero pledges come from businesses and VC show a growing interest in carbon credits topics. And do you think that sustainable forestry will get even more public attention and funding in the upcoming years? I strongly hope and I also believe so. It is absolutely necessary. I mean, I was talking about the numbers beforehand. This is a problem yeah. that really concerns all of us. And forests do so much more than provide timber and even more than just storing carbon. That's also a little bit of a, a, a narrow viewpoint. And they provide livelihood for a bunch of different plants and animals. They contribute to clean water. They give us recreational space. All of these things that we're not yet paying for, basically. Um, and also to, again, put it into, into perspective, so forests and also forest management. So what that means is through wood products actually sequester over 11% of the total EU emissions each year. That's a pretty significant contribution. And now studies say that we, this can be doubled with the right incentives to increase forestry. So it is also on the higher policy level, I think, a big lever that we can make use of. And the German government, thankfully, just launched a new subsidy package this year of 900 million that will go into forest adaptation, so Waldumbau in German, to speed up this process. But we think this will not be enough. So carbon markets do pro provide a really important investment from the private market for this funding gap. Great. Yeah. So it seems like you are perhaps going outside of the typical startup collaborations and partnerships with the interaction with the government. And speaking of maybe another non-traditional partnership, do you think that collaboration with academia is important for solutions related to climate change? Yes, absolutely. And so what we are doing is we're basically putting a lot of peer-reviewed science into practice 
Forestry science actually being one of the oldest sciences we have. One of the oldest institutes in Germany was a forestry institute, which is amazing. So there's so much knowledge out there, but sometimes it doesn't really make it into practice. So that's one of our big tasks. And it's What's especially important for us, institutes like the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, also sometimes referred to as PIC in Germany, which develops actually the climate models that flow into our simulation. So we don't make those up ourselves. It's important to use external data and research from universities. Also researchers at the Oxford University who developed the Oxford Offsetting Principles, which is basically a guideline to help ensure that offsetting actually helps to achieve a net zero society. I spoke with one of the authors of the paper recently to also discuss kind of, yeah, how the principles, it's quite a, kind of a second version of them. And I think that's so interesting to be in this field where both science and practice are being shaped and people are iterating on their strategy all the time. An example of that is also Microsoft that is very publicly doing their RFP process. So their requests for proposals mm -hmm. on carbon projects and every year publish their learnings. And I think that's a great attitude to have to say, hey, we might not get it 100% right the first time, which I think even in this academic context, which sometimes strives for perfection a little bit too much, I think, to have this attitude of saying, we're, we're going to try to do the best we can, we will do it publicly, because then everybody else can learn from what we maybe didn't do optimally in the first round. Interesting. And also maybe diving deeper into the, the whole academic research, what I learned from what I saw on the internet, also in different papers regarding carbon markets and carbon credits. And also maybe part of the critiques that you can find online is that actually when you plant resilient forests, something that Pina aims to do, you kind of forget biodiversity. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's why I wanted to clarify that with you because I've said you're definitely an expert in the field. Like, how does it correlate together, planting resilient trees and maintaining biodiversity nevertheless? We're focused on increasing carbon storage through increasing climate resiliency. So maybe first, what does climate resiliency even mean? It means being more resilient against climate threats. So that's droughts, storms, pests such as bark beetles and basically yeah, increased heat. And for that, at Pina, we turn monocultures, so forests that basically contain more one or maybe two tree species, mm -hmm. into climate resilient mixed forests. And mixed is the really important keyword here. So what we're doing is we're focusing on climate resilient species. So this actually increases biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And then we also increase Uh, diversity on another level. So this is basically if you think about the y-axis of a forest. So currently one of these monocultures will probably contain all the same age class. So all the trees will be the same age, so also the same height, which is not very diverse. And what we are doing is we're introducing a second layer, so kind of like a second story in the forest called understory, where basically you increase diversity in terms of height and you increase diversity in terms of tree species. And that overall Similar actually to a financial portfolio where you wouldn't invest in only one asset class, especially if you don't really know what kind of risks may become relevant, you're diversifying in the forest. And that's actually really essential to, to climate resiliency. Wow. Yeah. I'm just sort of thinking that over and taking it in a little bit. That's really interesting. And I had never thought about it that way. So I appreciate you for pointing that out. But moving forward through a bit more of Yulia and I's research to ask maybe a little bit of a harder question Voluntary carbon markets are still a little bit of a controversial topic with some people claiming that the lack of regulations and quality control make it difficult to effectively combat climate change. But as you are an expert in this field, as Yulia said, I'd be curious to hear how you see it and 
also whether or not you see more regulations coming in this area. Yes, so I do agree with some of the criticism. I still think that carbon markets and especially the voluntary carbon market that we're mostly talking about today are a very strong tool to finally have a chance at realigning economic and ecological goals. If we come up with a different version, I would be happy to look into that. But carbon markets are kind of the best guess we currently have, and they have existed for over a decade. So I think it would be sad to throw away all of those learnings. Instead, I think we need to um, build better on what we have already experienced in the past. And part of that is more regulation. So what's interesting is currently we actually have good business practice in the market. There is very little regulation in the voluntary carbon market. This good business practice is established by NGOs such as Vera or Gold Standard, but even those are not fail-proof. And I think that has shown kind of in recent news headlines, also the John Oliver series about offsetting, I think really made the round. And more regulation is not only needed, it's also coming. So on the EU level, they're currently working on certification regarding carbon projects, which we are strongly supporting and also actively engaging in with, actually. So this happens in a very public forum, thankfully, in the EU. Most of what they do needs to be public. And this also gives us a chance to influence how this carbon certification will actually turn out. You just mentioned these big players such as Vera or Gold Standard that certify carbon credits. And as from my understanding of Pina's business model and also like your offering to the to the companies and also to the to the forest owners, you certify the carbon credits yourself, right? And the question would be like, is it hard to compete with this big legacy players such as Vera or Gold Standard? And do you need that there should be some opposite player independent in the market just to just to take also some space from 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 these big players? It's a great it's a great question. And I ha again have to take a step back because it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So the puzzle pieces you need to issue a carbon credit are, first of all, a standard. So for us at the moment, that is the ISO 14064 norm from the <laughs> I don't know if anyone will find it interesting to Google that, but that is the number of the International Organization for Standardization. That's what ISO stands for. So this is what we're using at the moment. Um, that's the standard. Then you need a methodology. So basically a document, a rule set that tells you what you need to be doing to in order to develop this carbon project. So who should be able to participate? How are you going to go about risk management, uh, quantification, all of these things? And for this, we actually developed our own, which we call the Forest Adaptation Protocol, because no other forest carbon project methodology out there globally was doing what we're trying to achieve, which is increasing climate resiliency through forest adaptation. So our first step in the founding journey was actually dissecting thousands of pages of norm documents from Vera, Gold Standard, the American Carbon Registry, etc. Coming back to having to do things that are maybe not the most fun <laughs> to get anywhere. This was not the most fun task we've done so far, but a really essential task. Because for us, we then adopted rules that lead to high quality and also scalability. So kind of changing the mindset of developing each project as if it is an individual project into a standardized approach of developing forest carbon projects focused on climate resiliency. So that's the standard and the second part, the methodology. Then you need a third party for auditing. So basically validation and verification. 
Now, our products are audited by a so-called VBB, that stands for Validation and Verification Body, that's also active for Vera, which is pretty interesting because here it's not really a yeah kind of competition situation, but we're using some of the same players. So I would say that we don't see these NGOs, these centered bodies as competition. We strongly believe that somebody needs to set the rules, and maybe that's even better if that's not an economically focused organization. So this could be an NGO or it could be at the EU level, which it seems like it might turn into sooner or later. But they are not great operators. So I think that is something that we are much better at. Speed, the iteration, the execution of actually getting a forest carbon project off the ground and running. Wow. Yes. Thank you so much for elaborating on that entire process. I think that's really interesting. And we've talked a lot about numbers related to climate change and forestation. And we've talked also about particularly numbers that maybe keep you awake at night. So I... I'm wondering in terms of the big picture, do you see a future where every forest is a sustainable one? Yes, I do. I think it's, it's at the core, I am an optimist and it really helps me to be actively directly working on this problem. I think that's why I actually do sleep well at night, even though if I sometimes think about this big number, because I know that I'm spending <laughs> my time, my career on trying to contribute. And the second part why I think this can turn into a reality is that we speak to a lot of companies and their willingness to invest in a future where all forests are sustainable is something that we are truly seeing, especially with this regional or local impact component. And yeah, we're here to ensure that every investment actually leads to this effective climate action that these companies are seeking. Great. I think also after this talk, Jacqueline and I will also have a very optimistic perspective on climate attack, also on carbon market, and especially on the work that Fina is doing. And also before we wrap up this episode, we always have a personal toolbox of our guests where we ask you quick questions and you give us short answers. Let me start with the first one. What is the book that everyone should read? So I love books. So I think reading is one of the best <laughs> life hacks that I personally know. I mean, kind of back to the hack of not having to make all mistakes yourself. I think you can just learn so much from reading. So the one that I brought, actually, I cheated a little bit because I brought two. But the first one I brought is from Jonathan Safran Foer called We Are the Weather. So coming back to my original research topic about diets and how they affect the climate, the author is actually known for his fiction writing. Mm -hmm. So one of the titles that might be more well known is called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close which is also great. And you can actually tell his storytelling abilities also in his more recent nonfiction works, which focus more on sustainable eating. So I think that's what makes it yeah, really enjoyable. And the second one I brought, um, because I actually love fiction, so I'm not reading so much nonfiction in my free time, is called The Me Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker. And it narrates what goes through a man's mind during his lunch break, which is a very quirky book. It's, it's quite short, so I really recommend this one if you just want to get out of your own bubble and, and think about someone, else, <laughs> someone else's lunch. <laughs> what is an app that you think everyone should download? So an app that I would recommend everybody to download is called Freedom, which I came across while reading a book called Make Time by some of yeah former Google Venture employees, authors of Sprint as well, about redesigning your time in your life. And what the app does is it allows you to lock yourself out of a lot of stuff. So this can be your social media profiles. I went a bit more of, of a severe route where I just deinstalled them, but you can also lock yourself out of your email after 20 minutes, things like that to just kind of 
help you clear your mind and do some of that really important deep thinking work that it's really easy to skip if you have a nice app, social media app sitting on your phone that is ready to distract you. One more question. I'm not sure whether you so much into podcasts as you are into books, but still, what is the podcast that everyone should listen to? actually love podcasts. Again, not so much the kind of popular science or self-improvement ones. Those are not really my thing. I love storytelling podcasts. So one that I would really recommend is called This American Life. Ira Glass, I think, is quite a famous person in the podcasting industry. They have really mastered storytelling. So each episode is about an hour and it's about a particular theme. And then they have three stories related to that theme. And I think the way they tie everything together is amazing. I think storytelling generally is a really undervalued skill, but really important also in business, whether you're communicating with potential clients, investors, future employees, I think you always need to be engaging and have clear communication. And I think listening to these masters of this, and I mean, their stories have nothing to do with entrepreneurship most of the time, still really helps me think about and develop this skill. So I would really recommend this one. Yeah, I think with all three of us coming from a social science background, the importance of storytelling is probably something we can all agree upon. But moving on to the next question, what's a routine that you follow? Oh, I wish I could tell you I'm the person who gets up early and does sports every day. I'm definitely <laughs> not that person. But here are three things that do work for me. The first one is weekly reflection and clarification. So really putting a blocker in your calendar for a good hour, sometimes maybe even two looking back at your last week in your calendar, the next week that's ahead of you and reflecting on any open items, what you could be preparing yourself for, and just getting a good feeling going into the weekend that you kind of know what's coming next week and that you're prepared and kind of iterating on your own learnings. The second one is don't cram your weekend and plan for alone time. This might not apply for everybody, but if you have a little bit of an introvert in you, then I think it's important to realize that you do need time to recharge your batteries. If I just have kind of a quiet evening, I might be, I don't know, just kind of dabbling around my apartment, organizing things or something like that, I really feel recharged the next day. So that for me personally is important. And I think the third one is to call your grandma or a loved one who <laughs> basically every time you hang up, you just feel better and you are sometimes really surprised, I think also by the wisdom. But to prove this third point, I actually brought a part of a letter that my grandma, her name is Rosie, wrote to me. And every time I read it, it's, it's a little bit like being on a phone call with her. I read it every time I need a bit of extra motivation. And I think you can just replace Geza with your name here. And I think Rosie's letter may also help you. I translated her letter from German. It's even nicer in German, but she's also a great storyteller. Here we go. You're part of the solution, dear Geza. You cannot detach yourself from the bigger picture. Feel responsible, reflect, be alive and affected by the state of the world. Train your eyes and ears. Expect of yourself that you can be at the forefront and lead the way. Just as you're a part of it, so are others. Do not exclude, but integrate. Do not condemn, but understand. Understand that you're not alone in your actions, but always also a model for others. How you act, others will also act. If you're not indifferent, others will be challenged to live more consciously. I wish you much success for your endeavor. It's the right path. Hosey. Wow. It's so, it's so touching, really. And I think we, we never had something like that before in our podcast. And that's, uh, I think it's really great. And 
to have something like that that you can read out loud to yourself like i don't know at least once a year i think gives you a lot of confidence and also warmth feeling that you're not alone and uh, feeling support from your from your loved ones and i think this can be it can be your grandma it can be a friend it can be anybody in your life where you just come out of a call or maybe even an email that you send them and you just yeah. kind of feel better about it and, and they have some wise words for you I think it's a very nice advice to to write letters to your loved ones. Maybe they want to reread it every two to three months. That's true. Great. And I actually made a, a copy of this one and I have it in my wallet at all times. So this got a, I guess, a special oh, place in my yeah. daily life as well. <laughs> I really appreciate like hearing that and you sharing that with us. I think it's really special and I feel very grounded particularly after hearing that. So I guess the final question in the personal toolbox would be, who is an innovator everyone should know other than your grandma, Rosie? <laughs> yeah, next to my grandma, Rosie. This is actually somebody who I think falls into a little bit the same category. So the one I picked is Esther Perel. You may have heard of her. So she, I think, is a great innovator around how we think about human relationships in general. I think a topic that can never get enough attention and at kind of the micro level of everyday interaction is just so important. And she does this in both aspects, whether it's personal, live or workplace. And I think she's a great person to follow, has a couple of books and a podcast or two actually out there. So yeah, give her a listen or a read. Great, Geta. I think it was such a such an exciting conversation. I really learned a lot, also about your personal perspective, your book recommendations, your view on the carbon markets, and also on building startups. Really, I take a lot out of this conversation today. Thank you for that. Thank you. I had a great time. The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork, together with Annabelle Schaefer, Chris Schnabel, Yulia Kosovskaya, and Jacqueline Hoffsmith. If you like our podcast and would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.